What up, good people? Welcome back to Love and Grit. I'm Laia. I'm Justin. And I'm Rachel. And today we are your official inspiration podcast, a.k.a. Don't tell us what you can't do. Why? Because we have two of Philly's proudest sons on our show today, and they are here to share their stories of perseverance and hard work. We will talk to Larry Miller about going from juvenile offender to president of the Jordan brand. Yes, the Jordan brand. Also, North Philly's own Mikey Cooper will break down how a teenager balances major acting gigs and writing for The Tonight Show while still keeping those braids up. This is going to be so good. But first things first, around the Philly faves, today's topic is... What are you looking most forward to this spring in Philadelphia? One of our family traditions when we were younger would be to go to the Devon Horse Show. This year, it's the last week of May. It's a two-week event. And you also can look at different boutiques and shopping. There's custom-made jewelry and blankets and yummy food. And it's a nice little quaint event oh i'm allergic to horses there's a are you oh I am. this horses is a sad and story hay. and hey oh my god it's really weird so mine is a phillies game i'm excited to finally be able to see a phillies game at citizens bank park it's kind of basic mm. but i'm looking forward to mm. it i like that i'm looking forward to the uh capital of festivals of the summer aka where i look forward to getting my shea butter a doom day Yes, because yes. it's been a minute and all of us didn't feel comfortable. And so now, hopefully, by the time a Dune Day hits, we'll be full, fancy free and maybe in your white early in the morning doing some libations. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Let's get this started. All right. Listen up, y'all, because class is in session. Today's visiting professor is West Philly's own Larry Miller. You may know him as the highest ranking king of the Jordan brand. You may have become more familiar with him in recent years for his controversial book, Jump, My Secret Journey from the Streets to the Boardroom, which chronicles his story of recognition and reconciliation as a juvenile offender who went from felon to president of an NBA team. Today, we find out how he does it, how he did it, and how he can continues to promote more opportunities to create more of him. Tell our listeners about your journey. Yeah. So going all the way back, born and raised in West Philly. When I was young and in elementary school, I was a straight A student, teacher's pet. But somewhere around middle school, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, I really started to be pulled in by the attraction to the street life and gang life. So I, I ended up joining a gang being involved in a bunch of crazy stuff. And then when I was 16, I actually shot a young man and he died and I was charged as an adult and sentenced to four and a half to 20 years. Did the four and a half years, got out, knocked around a bunch of other stuff in and out of jail again. And finally, I went back the last time for a number of armed robberies. And when I was there the last time, the prison I was at had a program where you could take college classes inside the jail, and then you could qualify to move into these trailers that were outside of the jail wall, and you could leave every day and go to college, go to school, and you just had to be back by eight o'clock in the evening. And when I heard about that program, I was like, man, that's how I want to do my time. If I got to be here, I want to be able to do it like that. And that was what motivated me to kind of get involved in the program. 
eventually I started to really believe that I could change my life. And, you know, it was a gradual process, but eventually as I took classes and got to know and got support and help from a number of the people that were involved with the program, I started to really believe that, you know, maybe I could change my life through this. So I got my associate's degree while I was in that program from Montgomery County Community College. And then transferred and moved down to a halfway house in North Philly, right off Columbia Avenue, 15th and Columbia Avenue. Cecil B. Moore, as as it is now, used to be Columbia Avenue. Transferred my credits down to Temple. Started at Temple as a junior, actually. Was working full-time, going to school full-time. Got my bachelor's degree from Temple in accounting, actually. When I was about to graduate, back then it was what was called the big eight accounting firms, which was if you were an accounting student, you wanted to get hired by one of the big eight firms. And so I had started interviewing with them and there was one firm called Arthur Anderson. They were actually the one that I was really interested in and targeting. So I went to the office for an interview, went through the whole day, talked to a number of people, and the whole day I'm thinking, you know, should I say something about my past? Because again, they're looking at my resume, fact that I'm graduating. They didn't know about where I had come from. So the whole day, like I said, I'm thinking about it, thinking finally I get to the last person who is like the hiring manager. I decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to share my story with this guy because I, I, I want to start this out on a solid ground. You know, we're sitting there and I start to tell him my story and I could see his face changing as I'm talking to him. Finally, I get through and I tell him and he says, wow, that's an amazing story. You know, I'm sure you're going to do great. He reached in his pocket and he said, I have an envelope here with a job offer, but I can't give it to you now. He said, I can't take the risk of giving you this offer now. He said, I wish you the best, but I can't do it. And at that point, I I decided that I was not going to share my background anymore. I wasn't going to deny it. I wasn't going to lie about it if anybody asked or if it came up, but I wasn't going to be the one to share it. So for the the next 40 years, I hid this and kept it a secret. And as I continued to move up and build on my career, I was carrying this secret with me that I was always afraid and concerned that it might come out. Because to me, my feeling was, if this ever comes out, it's going to ruin everything that I've built up to this point. And so I I never shared it anymore. And were you ashamed of it? Like, was it ever present? Or would you think about it once in a while? It was ever present. I wasn't necessarily ashamed because I still stayed connected to my past. Like there was a friend of mine who was my best friend when I was inside the last time and he was doing a life sentence. And whenever I was back in Philly, I would go up to see him. I stayed connected with his family. So I stayed connected to my past, but I, and I wasn't ashamed of it, but I didn't want to bring it out because I thought that it would change how people viewed me mm-hmm. and the opportunities I would have access to. You mentioned for 40 years, you were worried that people would find out. But for folks that haven't read the book, they don't realize with the family that forgave you. When we were in the process of doing this, I wanted to reach out to Mr. White's family, but I was nervous about it. I was really nervous and concerned about it. And I didn't push it as hard as I should have. I, I take full responsibility for not pushing as hard as I should have. But we were on the path. We had actually connected with a private investigator because, again, it had been over 50 years. It was 55, 56 years since this happened. And I didn't know where they were, who was still around or whatever. But the New York Times found 
found them before we did. And the New York yeah, Times wrote an article about the fact that we didn't connect with the family and that they were blindsided by and, and all I, I agree 100 percent. We should have done a better job of connecting with them. But what that article actually did was now we knew who they were. So we actually ended up meeting with them. My daughter and I ended up meeting with them in Philadelphia. And it was an incredibly emotional meeting. I mean, I I was nervous walking into the meeting, didn't know what to expect, and I'm sure they didn't either. And the meeting started out with me just expressing my sorrow and remorse for what I had done and for not reaching out and getting in touch with them sooner. And then each one of them spoke and talked about Mr. White and how this had impacted them. But each one of them, when they were done speaking, it was his sister, his older sister, his son, who was a year old at the time, and his daughter, who wasn't born at the time. They each said, but I forgive you. And to me, if nothing else comes out of this whole process, the fact that I was able to get that forgiveness from Mr. White's family is the most important thing that could have happened for me. I mean, at the end of the meeting, they all hugged me. They're amazing people. They're forgiving family. And there's nothing that I could have gotten out of this whole process that means more to me than the fact that they were willing to forgive me. So I ended up, my first job was for Campbell's Soup Company. Campbell's had a program that was like a management trainee program, and they were competing with the big eight firms to hire top students coming out and and accounting. So I started Campbell's Soup in that program, did a couple of different jobs at Campbell's Soup, was there for five years. I left Campbell's and went to work for Philadelphia newspapers. They were the company that published the Inquirer and Daily News. Let me ask, because most people who are listening would be like, at no point did anybody do like the regular background check that you do for a job? When I first started at Campbell's Soup, the question on the application was, have you been convicted of a crime in the last five years? And it was it was beyond five years. So I was able to truthfully answer that question, no. And that's the way it was for most of any other time I had to put an application. And I just found out recently that when I went to work for the Trailblazers, they did do a background check and they found out something, but they still hired me anyway. So so I worked at Campbell Soup and then went to the Philadelphia newspapers. From there, I ended up moving to Portland to work for a company called Janssen. They make swimwear and sportswear. I started at Janssen as the controller And after I was there for two years, I became the president of Janssen. That's when I was able to develop the connection with Nike because Nike was here in Portland. Janssen was here in Portland. And uh, one day, myself and a few guys were sitting around talking about how we could grow the business. And we came up with this idea to, to try to do a partnership with Nike to do competition swimwear. So ended up doing the deal with Nike that is actually still in place today. But through that deal, I got to know some of the folks there. And there was a guy who was the global head of apparel for Nike. He and I would meet every so often and talk about the partnership we were working on. I remember leaving one of those meetings and saying to myself, I feel like I just got interviewed. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, he called and said, hey, would you ever consider coming to work for Nike? I said, yes. But I ended Mm -hmm. up starting at Nike as the head of apparel in the U.S., which was about a billion dollar business at the time. So that was my first job in Nike. Did that for about a year and a half. And then MJ was about to retire from the Bulls for the last time. And there was a lot of concern about what's going to happen to the business now, because the formula was Tinker designs this cool shoe. 
or we do some advertising with Spike Lee or Bugs Bunny or somebody. And then Michael plays in the shoe 82 games and into the playoffs. And that was the formula for selling shoes. Now him not playing is coming out of that formula. So there was a lot of concern and there were a lot of people who thought, Hey, you know what? It's, it was a nice run, but it's over. Myself and some other folks here really believed that we could do something beyond Michael's playing days and that we could take that logo and actually turn it into a brand and build a brand around it. So I was asked to put a team together and strategies together to do that. You know, this year, Jordan business is going to be $5 billion. (laughs) So I, I guess we did something right. (laughs) <laughs> you, stumbled, you stumbled onto something there. <laughs> we were in 2007, we were just about to hit a billion dollars. And wow. the Portland Trailblazers reached out to me. Long story short, they offered me a job as the president of the Portland Trailblazers. Um, I don't understand, Larry, how they thought. It's so interesting. I'm just saying from a layman, I don't understand how they thought from going from apparel that you could now just take a team, Larry. So when I was running the Jordan brand, it wasn't just apparel now. This was like the whole Jordan brand. So we had marketing, we had sports marketing, we had production, we had all those functions. It it was like we were a small company within Nike. And I was the president of that company and had all these different functional areas that were part of the organization. So I think they looked at the sports marketing stuff that we had done uh, in terms of adding different athletes. They looked at all the marketing we did. And I think they were looking for somebody that could bring certain leadership skills, you know, certain skills, regardless of the industry that you're in, those skills still translate. So certain leadership skills, certain team building skills, those things are transferable among different industries. And it was funny because I went to a game. This is how it all came about. I went to a game and I was having dinner with a woman who worked for the Trailblazers that I had known for quite a while and a guy who runs an organization here in Portland called uh, Self-Enhancement Incorporated. His name is Tony Hobson. I'm having dinner with them and the Trailblazers had just decided to not rehire the guy that was the president. And so they were in a process of searching for someone. So we're having dinner and Tony says, uh, man, you should throw your name in the hat for that. I said, man, I don't know anything about running a team. I've never run a, an NBA team. And the woman who was sitting there, her name is Sarah Mensa. Sarah was like, yeah, you should apply for it. I think you'd be perfect for this. So I was like, no, no, no. So she convinced me to at least meet with the person who was doing the hiring, a guy named Todd Lawicki. So I ended up meeting with Todd. We were supposed to be having a drink. And it turned into like a four hour dinner. And by the time we were done, I think we both had interest in each other, you know, as far as this role was concerned. And so I went through the whole process. They offered me the job. Nike made a counter offer to me. And I had a tough decision to make whether I should stay with Nike, stay in uh, running the Jordan brand. And at the time, I was actually running all of Nike's basketball brands. So it was Jordan, Converse and Nike basketball or go to the trailblazers. And it was a tough decision for me to make. I kind of went back and forth on it. I had a weekend to make the decision. And so I'm kind of going back and forth over the weekend. And then finally, that Sunday, I drove up to this place that used to be in this area that was kind of a hot springs spa. And you could soak in hot springs, mineral water and get a massage and all that stuff. So I was like, you know what, I need to just chill my mind out. So I'm going to drive up there and just chill in this mineral water and see if that helps me to make a decision. 
And so I'm sitting there and I kind of had decided pretty much that I was going to stay at Nike and stay in the Jordan brand. And I'm sitting there in, the, in this tub of mineral water and I kind of closed my eyes. And in my office at that time, I had a picture of Jackie Robinson, his first day going into the Dodgers locker room. And that image popped into my mind and it made me think that I had an opportunity here to show people that look like me, that someone who looks like them could be in a role as president of an NBA team in Portland, Oregon. And so I decided at that point that I had to take this job because to me, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about what was the best decision for me. It was about what was the best decision that would allow me to show people that they can achieve, that they can accomplish. People that look like me can do a job like that. And so I decided to take the Trailblazer job. And I was there for five years. We did some things that turned the organization around and got it on track. My first draft was a guy named Greg Oden, who ended up getting injured and didn't really play that much. But my last draft there was Damian Lillard. So that kind of worked out because Damian is uh, the best in the league. Can you talk about being from Philly and what you went through and how that's transitioned to help you to where you are today? You know, being from Philly, growing up and being involved in the streets and going through what I did as far as in and out of jail, I think it Mm -hmm. did definitely teach me some things that I have applied in the business world. You know, in the street, in jail, you don't show your emotions. Showing emotions is a sign of weakness. And I think I've learned that even in a business situation, I don't want to let the other person always exactly know what I'm thinking. You know what I mean? Because then... I feel like I can maneuver better through. And I, and I think that's the way it is. And I think I learned that from the streets of Philly and from being in jail. It's like you're better off if the other person doesn't always know what your thoughts are or where you're going. And also, I think, you know, I'll be in meetings and people are worked up and upset about some shoe that didn't sell or something that happened in the market. And I'm thinking to myself, this is like easy stuff to deal with. You know, I don't have nobody putting a gun to my head or I'm not in front of a judge trying to talk my way out of jail. So how are we going to sell this shoe? That's kind of easy to figure out. You you know what I mean? So I do think that there were advantages to the experiences and some of the things that I, I went through that really did help me to build my business career as well. We like to ask our guests, you know, the name of the podcast is Love and Grit. So what does Love and Grit mean to you as it relates to Philadelphia and or even your own personal journey? Those are the two things that you need to be successful, whether you're coming from Philly or wherever you're coming from. I think you need love from people and you need to love people and you need grit. To me, grit is toughness. You need to be tough and how you get through things in life. You have to get through them with love. But you also have to get through them with toughness and grit. What do you think about the Sixers this year? Well, being from Philly, no matter where I live, I'm always (laughs) going to be a Philadelphia fan. That's what we like to hear. I think the Sixers have a decent shot this year at winning. I think at winning uh, a championship. I think they. All right. I just want to hear the whole sentence. I think they should be in the conversation. Uh, Again, to me, coming out of the East, I think it's Philly, Milwaukee. The Nets, you got to put them in there because they're a possibility. The East is so much stronger than the West this year. It's about time. I agree. It's about time. And it's going to be tough. It's not an easy road, but I I think the Sixers can get there. Don't tell Mikey Cooper what he can't do. 
His mom had to know this when she decided to homeschool and introduce him to the entertainment business at the age of six. Fast forward a decade or so, Mikey is taking his skills as a poet, MC, and actor straight to our screens in some of the biggest shows on TV. I'm talking about the Power franchise and even Amy Schumer's new Hulu show, Life and Beth. And hold up. He's a TV writer too, yes, for Jimmy Fallon's The Kids Tonight Show. That's just hitting the surface of his work, but don't get it twisted. Mikey is also focused on his community and making sure he's not the only star that shines. I think I'm the most excited because I have a son who's five years old and I need to know how your mother first got you started in the business and how were you not nervous? And just tell us about that process and what it was like for you as a young person. I really had to take it back to my mom. She went to the Creative and Performing Arts High School here in Philly. 20 years ago, she started her entertainment company, Miss Her Entertainment Incorporated. She handles everything in the entertainment world and transitioned into modeling and then managing actors. And ever since a little, she always exposed me to the entertainment world. So that was an option that I had. And I feel like I caught the bug from her when I came out the womb. And this was what I was meant to do. And it just felt natural. So being put in front of the camera, I love that. That was exciting and interesting to me. And it became a passion very shortly. And so this is why I've been doing this for over 10 plus years now. Tell us about booking your first gig. What was that like? Booking my first gig. Interesting. It is so hard to remember that far back. But I... Wait a That far back? It's a long time. Yeah, yeah that's I a quarter of my life. I Keep will going. say, before I got into <sighs> acting... I remember one of the first jobs that I did was modeling. Okay. We had moved down to Atlanta. And so I, at four or five years old, was the cover of Crunk Magazine down there. I used to be a little shy, but all of that would go out the window as soon as I got on the runway or in front of the camera. It was just like, okay, Hamming it's time, it up. It's Hamming it up. It's time to, you know, it's time to do my thing. So, what was your first talent that you discovered? I want to say everybody when I was younger would always say to me, he articulates himself very well. I just thought it was natural speaking like that. And so people would say, you know what, you should really do poetry, spoken word and public speaking, all those things. And so poetry was one of my first niches that I kind of took on at about, I'm going to say nine years old, I was writing and making my own spoken word and poetry pieces and posting them and uploading them. And so that was interesting acting allowed me to know how to understand stories and tell stories. And so that created the thing in me that allowed me to tell my own stories and create those stories and present them to the world and have people relate to them. And so I caught on to that poetry very early. And that was beautiful for me being able to express myself in that outlet. What was it like having a role on the Power Book series? What was that oh. like for you? That was awesome. So I had booked Power Book 3, Raising Canaan, and I play Tyus Crane in the premiere episode of that show. That was such a great opportunity and to be in the Power Universe is just great in itself. That was also a new experience for me as an artist and an actor playing a bully. I was one of my first roles playing a bully. And <laughs> Where'd you pull know, that from? A lot of people my... told me I couldn't do it or they, they didn't Uh-oh. see me as a bully. And so I was like, y'all do know I'm from North Philly, right? Y'all, y'all do remember that? <laughs> Even day. though I do all of this, I still come from the heart of Philadelphia. So yeah. that grit is still in me. And so when I have to pull it out, I will. And so I presented that and people were surprised. They were like, man, you played that part. I didn't think you could be a bully. And it came out great. That was a beautiful project to work on. Tell people how that that audition process. I know you remember that, but oh. tell people the audition process for that role. Bro, the audition process for that show 
it was different. So they wanted me to bring the most aggression that I could and the most toughness. Mm. Boom, boom, boom. I remember back then, I think they booked me off of the first audition. There wasn't like a callback or anything like that. I got booked off the first audition. Well, excuse me. That's impressive. The audition process for me is always in the middle. It's like a balance to act because I'm like, okay, I know I did well, but okay, what are they looking for? But also in a sense, how long is this going to take? Because some audition processes be taking forever. And I'd be like, wow, they will call you two months after and say, well, you know, we want you to come back in for this. We want to pin you for this like two, three months later. And that's always crazy because it's like you, you've done forgot about that and done 100 plus auditions <laughs> after that. So that's always interesting. But that was a great process as well. What was it like for your like family members when they were able to see you much more in these larger roles, even if you have, you know, cousins that are similar age bracket as you? A lot of my family's always supported me in the ventures of the entertainment world and always expected me to boom, 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 appear everywhere. And so when Power Book 3 came out, a lot of people were so excited. Everybody was posting about it. I was adding and replying to a whole bunch of stories for like two days straight because it was just so much support and love for my family, my friends and my peers in this industry. And so that was just beautiful to see that culmination. That's what you work to do as an actor and visionary, you know, be able to tell stories everywhere and have people come together and see that and support you in that. Also, you mentioned cousins, which is very interesting because going back <laughs> to my mother, my mother paving the way for us into the industry and the entertainment world my cousin also is a oh cousin. yes you got a famous cousin That's i right. do yes jerry johnson yeah. who uh you like how Taj. i tried to softly make that transition though you like that, <laughs> that, was, nice, nice, that was nice that was nice yeah so my cousin jerry johnson plays ty on the harlem series mm-hmm, for amazon prime did. alongside megan good shanika shanday and grace byers which is beautiful we're building this little village and you know she actually lived with us for the majority of her high school time in kappa as well before she wow so she's a real philly girl yes so we kind of built our little arts village and we built each other up as artists to now you see what we're doing now we're just pushed out into this entertainment world and just letting our passion be free and be seen what do you want to do when you grow up You know, well, that's not a long way away, but um, I would like to branch out into directing and I want to be a serial entrepreneur, have multiple businesses, dip into real estate, all of that goodness. I want to have my own studio, similar to the Tyler Perry Studios, big Mm -hmm. old plot where I better do it here. Right. In Philly, right? right? Because like that's the thing. They always seem to neglect the community that we come from. Okay, we're going to go to Atlanta. Uh, um, but no, we're going to bring it right That's back. That's not to what the Tyler Perry did. He brought it home like you will. Right. Tyler Perry's from Atlanta. Right. Right. People want to go everywhere else and take everything everywhere else, but keep it where you came from and bring those opportunities that we didn't have when we were coming out of the city. And so that's beautiful. And that's the plan. That's the goal. That's the vision to bring it all back here and hone it back into Philly and just create new opportunities for other artists. Okay, so now let's talk about how a 16-year-old becomes a TV writer because Mm -hmm. now I'm in class and I got my pen and paper and I'm taking notes. The Kids Tonight Show on the Peacock streaming platform. That came about, you want to know what's funny? I originally auditioned to be one of the hosts on this show. I believe that. They were like, yo, we really love this kid, but he's too old. So we we need to put him somewhere. And I was like, that's still great in the sense that they want to keep me 
here and they want to use me somewhere. And so the head writer and producer on that show, Brian McCann, came and he said, we want you to be a kid writer on the writing team for the Kids Tonight show. And I was like, that's crazy. I've never been in an actual writing room. This is an insane opportunity. And so, you know, we went through all the steps. We're like sending some writing samples over. I did that. They loved them. And they said, this kid is the whole package. Let's bring them to the team. And talk about, too, what that means. So when you say you're a writer for that show, what do you do? Like, what's the day? Like, I, what is that? So the day of writing in the writer's room for the Kids Tonight show, I'm in the writing room the whole day. Let's also mention, you know, because of the whole uh, COVID regulations and stuff like mm-hmm. that, the first two, yeah. two months of me writing was over Zoom. And so mm-hmm. we would be in the room and I would be here physically and adding to the material and forming the show that you now get to see. So after that, we went to 30 Rock in the studio like every day for like a week straight in the writer's room creating content new episodes literally planning ahead um what those episodes are going to be creating the comedy content just working and just throwing ideas out and being creative and if it sounded silly that's what we want we want it all to flow and so that's what we were doing in that writer's room and then you get to see it before your eyes visualizing the studio and through the kids and how all of this is just brought to life and it's just a beautiful cultivation How do you make sure you're not overwhelmed or feeling pressured going to these different interviews and these new assignments? How do you make sure that you're able to keep your sanity and that positive energy? You know, I I like to tell everybody this and also tell myself this. You have to know who you are before you can be anybody else. If you do not know who you are as an artist, as a person, if you do not know who you are, you cannot step into another role and portray that and tell that story because you need to come in knowing this is who I am. And before anything, this is who will be respected and represented. And so in that sense, you got to also come in with a tough skin. You know, it's that love and that grit. You got to love yourself and you got to have that grit to persevere through all of the obstacles that this industry presents for you. And so I don't... Yes. And so I do. I never sweat the nose because when one door closes, another door opens. Absolutely. And that's, and that's just to see that and visualize that happening is just to know that perseverance is possible. And so, yeah, yes. you got to know who you are. Meditation is a big key for me. Keeping my peace and my sanity and knowing who I am. You know, you discover a lot about yourself when you're in your own mind and aligning your spirit and aligning your vibrations. And I live by this idea that you have to put out good energy to receive it back. So that is my goal as a person to constantly be evolving and putting out positive vibrations so that that's what I receive back and only. Are you guys excited for the Roots Picnic, where we will be doing a live podcast? Absolutely. I'm excited for Roots Picnic that it's a two-day event this year. I'm excited, but you know two-day means two outfits, right? Two outfits, two hairdos. I just hope it's not too hot. Woo! Well, we'll see people there June 4th and 5th at the Man Music Center. And you can follow us on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, at Love Grit Philly. Have a good one. Bye.